Good morning. It's, uh, it's great to be back here after, after about two years. It uh, <laughs> feels like it was just yesterday, honestly. I want to I wanna open up with a, an article that I saw as very interesting this past week. And this is a true story, as hard as it may believe. It's about a man and his pet hippo named Humphrey. In 2011, a man was killed by his 1.2-ton pet hippopotamus named Humphrey. After repeated warnings that this wild animal is something that he would never be able to tame. The man's savage body was found submerged in the same river where this hippo was initially found after a flood. Humphrey is like a son to me, says the owner. He's just like a human. There's a relationship between me and Humphrey that some people just don't seem to understand. They think you can only have a relationship with dogs, cats, and domestic animals, but I have a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. But the owner's wife, however, expressed some misgivings concerning this hippo on several occasions. It was reported earlier that year that a 52-year-old man and a seven-year-old grandson spent two hours in a tree after being chased by Humphrey. Humphrey was also blamed for killing several cattle belonging to the, the owner's business partner. And on top of that, Humphrey would regularly break out of his enclosure and start chasing golfers around the local golf, uh, golf park. <laughs> so you can only imagine that sight. But despite all this, the owner still regarded the hippo as lovable and a quote-unquote gentle giant. We look at this man, and he's a prime example of what arrogance and confidence in his own wisdom and flesh looks like. See, despite having several warnings, despite knowing the blatant danger that he was putting himself in, he had confidence that he could keep things under control and keep this dangerous animal that would all, and likely, which happened at the end, would kill him, that he could keep this animal as a pet, that he could tame it. And... You know, we, we, we laugh about that, but often, when we do the same thing with sin, we're no different from this owner. When we deceive ourselves into thinking that um, whatever pet sin we are bringing into our lives, that we can keep it and, and keep it under control, we can keep things from getting out of hand, we're going to meet the same fate that this man made, met with his hippo. And in today's text, we're going to be looking at the exact same case uh, with a story that many of you are, are familiar with, I'm sure, of Samson and Delilah. Go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at the three scenes concerning this, the redemption of Samson. The three scenes concerning Samson's redemption. And here, here's the goal I have with today's sermon is I want to convey just how even the strongest and godliest of us here, even the godliest man or woman, how much destruction just letting in one little Delilah in your life can wreak on your life and those around you. So rather than reading through, straight through the text, we're going to be reading it as we, we preach through it this morning. But a couple of things that you want to keep in mind as we go through this, just some background information. As we read through the book of Judges, we need to make sure we're reading it in light of what happened in the book of Joshua. So if, if, if you remember, the book of Joshua, all throughout it, 
It's after Moses died, Joshua took over, and God is constantly delivering uh, them into the promised land. He's delivering them, uh, the Canaanites and all the people who he's judging into the hands of Joshua and the Jews. And God's command to them is to um, the people that he is desiring to judge, that God's people are to kill man, woman, child, anything that breathes, they are to devote them to complete destruction, lest they fall into the same idolatry that these people fall into. And we all know how that turned out. They got sloppy, and they let several of them live, and they cohabitated, they, they married with them. They, and we don't see the consequences of that until we get to the book of Judges. Because after Joshua died, what happens is there's this brief period where there's no ruler, there's no kings, and everyone's just left to do what's right in his own eyes. And every single generation, it's the same pattern where you have people fall back into idolatry. God judges them by placing them under oppression from a certain people. And out of mercy, God redeems them. And then a week later, guess what happens? They fall back into that same idolatry. Now God has to chastise them again. And so when we think of a judge in today's context, we think of a man with a a, a weird robe, with a gavel that is going to decide who's guilty and innocent. But when it's talking about judges here, it's talking about someone who God has raised up out of his grace and mercy to redeem and to deliver his people out of oppression. And what you see is that every generation, God's people grow more and more unfaithful. And not just his people, but the very judges who would deliver them grow more and more unfaithful. And so as we're in today's text learning about Samson, he's the final judge. He's arguably the most unfaithful of all the judges before him. And his story begins in chapter 13, where it opens up by saying that God's people, because of their idolatry, are placed under a 40-year oppression from the Philistines. And as we continue reading throughout uh, chapter 13, the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mom and dad. And he says that your son that you're about to give birth to is going to be the one who I raise up to deliver my people. And the angel of the Lord, this is actually Jesus pre-incarnate. This is Jesus himself before he took on flesh talking to Samson's parents. And he says, because he's going to be the one to deliver my people, I want to consecrate him. I want him to take the Nazarite vow, which as you read number six, you see that there's, big, there's three big rules for anyone wanting to be a Nazarite. So if you were here and you wanted to become a Nazarite in the Old Testament times, these are the three rules that you would have to live by. You cannot drink. You cannot um, uh, touch any dead corpse. So anything that was dead, you can't touch. And you can never shave your head. If you broke any of those, you would have broken your vow. And so all throughout chapters 14 and 15, as you see Samson all grown up, you see this constant pattern of just unfaithfulness. Where it starts off with him seeing a, a, a beautiful young woman, Philistine woman, who he wants to make his wife. But that's strictly against what God commanded in Leviticus. You can't intermarry with these people. But, you know, he, she's beautiful, so that doesn't matter to, to, to Samson, so he marries her. And he goes from that to, to, to running across a dead lion, which, by the way, if you touch, not only for the Nazarite vow, but in Leviticus, if you touch anything dead, you're unclean. Not only did this man eat out of the lion, 
guess what he did? He had his parents eat out of it without them knowing. So not only did he make himself unclean, he made his parents unclean. This is a man who, he, he doesn't care about what God has commanded him to do. And when he kills a thousand Philistines, out of all the possible weapons that he could have used, guess what he chose? The jawbone of a dead donkey. This is a guy who, even though God tells him, don't touch these dead animals, even though he vowed to never do it, he's doing it all throughout this book. And we see this pattern of unfaithfulness carry over in the chapter we're in today, which is chapter 16. So the first scene concerning Samson's redemption is scene one, Samson and the Gazite prostitute. We look at verses one through three with me, and we are going to look at Samson's time in Gaza. Verses one through three, it says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were, were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city, and they kept crying all night, saying, let us wait there till light in the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, Geza, this is uh, the Philistines' chief fortress. This is, the, this is the, the military camp of military camps for the Philistines. And... But that doesn't matter to Samson. He, he's, he's very confident in his strength. He's very confident that God's blessing him. So he just marches right in there knowing full well that he's public enemy number one for these guys. And the interesting thing is he doesn't go there and wreak havoc. He doesn't go there to deliver his people. He goes there because he sees a prostitute that he has his eye on. And that's the very first verse of this chapter. And what we need to remember is that this willingness to indulge in this degree of sin, this didn't come overnight for Samson. Because remember, there's three other chapters before here, and, and all throughout, you never see anything about prostitutes. You always just see, quote-unquote, little sins that he's doing. Touching dead animals, giving over to his anger, marrying women that God prohibited. And one thing that tells us is that sin is never stagnant. It is always going to escalate. It's always going to be only a matter of time before you go from committing this sin to doing something as serious as prostitution, honestly. And so the Gazites hear that Samson is in, is in town and uh, they decide to ambush him. But they know what he's capable of. They know his strength. They've heard the stories. So rather than just going in and making a full frontal attack, they decide to wait out the gates until morning to ambush him which never happens, as we will see. And after Samson has his fun with, with this woman, as he's leaving, he does, uh, he does something that you would imagine a, a, a frat boy doing, honestly. He steals the gate. Now, this gate, when you think of what this is, the, the whole purpose of a gate is to defend yourself against enemies. This is the very pinnacle of a fortress's strength and might, and Samson decides to mock them by showing how little might they have compared to him. So he takes what's the very pinnacle of their strength and he hops over his shoulders and he walks all the way to the hill in front of Hebron and just takes it. Which by the way, this would have been a 40 mile hike 
And there's no telling how many thousands of pounds this gate was. This was a miraculous uh, miracle that only God could have done. And all throughout that, just these first three chapters, we see this mentality where Samson, if he sees something, he, nothing's going to stop him. He's going to take it. Which brings us to the second scene, which is going to be the main point, uh, one of the main scenes of this chapter. Scene two, Samson and Delilah. Look at verses four through five of me. We see Delilah come into the picture in the story. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, which by the way, in Hebrew, Delilah means of the night. So her name alone should have been given off red flags for Samson. And verse five continues by saying, and the loads of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him and humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So th this starts off differently than it did for the prostitute for Samson. This, this wasn't just a one-night fling for him. It starts off with saying that he loved her. He was infatuated with her. He was, he, all of his affections were set on her. And one commentary makes the note that we see Samson go from a prohibited wife to a prostitute, now to a mistress. And as we see, oh, are gonna see, this mistress is gonna be his downfall. So as he is in love with his new girlfriend, uh, word gets around that they're dating, quote unquote. And so the five Philistine loads, out of desperation to kill this man, um, connect with, with Delilah and say, if you find out what his secret is that we can kill him, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver each. So that would have been 5,500 pieces between all five of them. This, this was, dollar signs were going off in Delilah's eyes right now. And as we look at verses six to nine, we see her first attempt at, at making this bounty. Look at verse six with me. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that, that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the load of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not yet been dried, and she bound with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. So Delilah starts off with, when you look closely at it, a very devilish question. Samson, tell me where your strength lies so that someone could kill you. See, this is someone who has such confidence in her manipulation and, her, uh, and the level of pride and lust that Samson's consumed with that she doesn't even need to hide her motives. She just flags, flats out asks him, tell me how to kill you. And he's, he responds with a lie. He says, if you want to buy me, take seven fresh bowstrings and that are not dry and tie me up with them. Which, by the way, guess what bowstrings were made of back then? The tendons of a dead animal. So he's about to break the whole law all over again. And it's interesting because you look at Samson and he, as consumed with lust and pride as this man is, 
there's still enough logic in him to know that this woman can't be trusted. He still knows that he, it's dangerous for him to tell her the truth of where his strength comes from. So he, he just tells her a lie. And you can only imagine what's, what's going on in his head right now. He sees danger right in front of him, and rather than run away, he decides just to play with it and, and uh, rely on his own strength. The whole time, he's probably thinking back at all the times where he's marched into the Gezas, the, the, the chief strongholds, all the times he, lions have attacked him and he's ripped them in half. And he's probably thinking, if I could stand against a raging lion, I can easily stand against this woman. Which we'll see how that ends. And one thing we can learn from that is you are always going to see a pattern with people who are confident in their flesh that they have a willingness to be tempted. They, they have a willingness to place them in temptation's way. Jesus says that we should have such a fear for sin that a regular part of our prayer is just for God to not lead us even to, into the temptation to sin. And yet when we are willingly going to places or sites or whatever where we know that temptation is on the, on the horizon, we're no different from Samson, honestly. And so she binds him up with these seven bowstrings that the Philistines gave her. And the men go into hiding into the inner chamber. These men are waiting to pounce on him, and they are just within arm's reach of Samson. But they're being cautious. They want to make sure that he's actually being honest before they, t- t- they take action. So Delilah plays it off as a flirtatious teasing game called the Philistines are upon you. So as Samson is lying there, she cries out, the Philistines are upon you. And he decides to play along, and he snaps the bowstrings and basically says, gotcha. And so, frustrated, Delilah begins with round two. She gives her second attempt, which we see in verse 10 through 12. Look at verse 10 with me. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other men. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So same thing. She starts off with trying to guilt trip him over lying to her, and he, she asks the same question. And he tells her another lie. He says, if you want to buy me, the truth is just get some new ropes that have never been used. That would do me in. And the funny thing about that is what happened in the last chapter the 3,000 Israelites came to him wanting to bind him and turn him to the Philistines. And what did they use to bind him? Fresh new ropes that have never been used. So at this point, he's just getting lazy with his lies. He's just recycling the same tricks over again. And so she binds him up with these, with these ropes and she plays the Philistines are upon you game again. And same thing, he snaps it and basically says, gotcha again. So Delilah begins with round three, her third attempt, in verses 13 through 14. Look at verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of head 
uh, of his head and wove them into a web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. So same thing all over again for the third time. She guilt trips him for lying to her, asks him the secret, and he tells her a lie. But this time the lie is to take the seven locks of his hair and to weave them and to fasten them with a pin. So what we see here is he's getting sloppier and sloppier. He's getting closer to the source of his strength. At least what he thinks is the source of his strength. And one thing you see here is that the longer you tolerate sin, the weaker your guard is going to become. See, this is the lie we often tear ourselves to justify our sins. As we say, I can live with these sins as long as I set up this line that I can't cross. I can, I can look at all this stuff. As long as I have this wall, that's not going to let me look at this stuff. You know, one, one way you just see this in everyday life is people have this false category of soft pornography and hard pornography. Well, where apparently the soft stuff is, is it's fine, it's justifiable, it's the hard stuff, it's the graphic stuff you want to stay away from. But when you read Ephesians, it makes it clear that there's not to be even a hint of sexual immorality among us. See, when we start trying to make categories like that, the way Samson was, where, he, where it was okay for him to touch dead animals, it was okay for him to marry the Philistine, the only thing that he could not break was his vow to not shave his head. When we do that same thing, we're callousing our own hearts. We're becoming more and more numb to the effects of sin in our lives. And so after she binds him up with, with this, she plays the Philistines are upon you game. He breaks the ropes and basically says, I can't believe you fell for me, fell for this a third time. <laughs> and so we get to the end of this, this scene in verse 15 through 17, where we see Samson finally caves in. Look at verse 15 with me. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all of his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have, ne for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved and my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. So Delilah guilt trips him in a way that she hasn't before. She, she plays the you don't love me card. She basically says, you, you, the fact that you keep lying to me proves that you, you don't really love me. You're not devoted to me. You, you don't care about me. And when she sees that that guilt trip doesn't work, what's her, what's her plan B? She begins nagging him day after day. This, this dripping faucet of a woman now becomes a blazing fire hydrant. And she vexes him to death. Turn back, keep your fingers here, but turn back to chapter 14. Just two chapters prior to this. And look at verses 16 and 17. And, and look at how, look, look at this case of deja vu we see here. This is with his first wife, the Philistine. Verse 16. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a widow to my people and you have not told me what it is. 
And he said to her, behold, I have not even told my father or mother. Why should I tell you? She wept over him for seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. It's the exact same thing. She, she plays the you hate me card, and then she starts nagging and pressing into him, and eventually he caves. The only difference between that case and what we read now in chapter 16 is the degree of consequences he's going to suffer for this. And so, Samson caves. He, he confesses everything to her. He tells her that if she wants to bind him and to take away his strength, she has to shave his head, and he doesn't hold anything back. Now, when we look at this, this whole interaction between Samson and Delilah, we, this, is, this is temptation personified. You look at Delilah, this is exactly what temptation would look like if it was a living person standing in front of you. And, and here, here's the temptation for all of us. When we read these cases of Samson or all the times that Peter was a knucklehead or all those cases, we have this temptation to almost laugh it off as of how absurd that is. But I would argue we are all more like Samson than we are different from him. See, I guarantee you, if you were in a counseling room with Samson and he was sitting right in front of you and you're, guys, you're trying to figure out why, what's, what's the hard issue? Why is he going to this prostitute? Why is he uh, idolizing Delilah? What, what's the root issue that needs to be addressed here? And you ask him, what is it that you really are trying to get out of these relationships? I guarantee you, he would say something like, the thing I really want is just affection. The thing I really want is just satisfaction. The thing I want is comfort. The thing I want is a sense of control. I remember I was counseling someone who had an engagement with a prostitute. And I remember sitting there and I asked him those same questions and he just said, I just want to feel loved. And I remember a chill going down my spine, realizing I had that same temptation. The only difference between all selfish desires and the selfish desires of Samson is the degree of consequences suffered for it. That should humble all of us. That should make it where when we're counseling people like this, when we're talking to people who engage in this, that, that produces a fear in us that we could, we're just one step away from that same, same situation. And the other thing we see is all throughout this, this relationship with his girlfriend, we see her making promises to him. And it might not be verbally outright, but, but there, there are promises that he's, he's perceiving that he can achieve with her. And what we always need to remember is when we're tempted to sin or to look at pornography or to have, do something with, a, uh, with a, a woman or man that we shouldn't be doing, we need to always remember that there's a promise being made that we need to see as a lie. See, the, the goal for sin, despite all the promises they will make you, is always to kill you. Sin, its only goal for your life is to send you to hell. Proverbs 5, verses 3 through 5 says, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight down to the grave. See, an adulterer, this is someone who, her lips are dripping with honey. You look at it, and there's, just, there's this promise of satisfaction and pleasure 
just by looking at it. The harlot looks at you and she, she makes promises. Her, her speech is as smooth as oil. She promises you things that seem almost too irresistible to, to, to go against. And here's the thing is, you may not be dealing with a prostitute. You may not be dealing with, with a, a man or woman who's trying to, to seduce you. Maybe you're just dealing with your own desires of your heart. Ephesians 4.22, we're commanded to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life. And the thing that corrupts it, according to this, is your deceitful desires. Meaning, our desires are always making a promises, promise to us that it's never going to fulfill. John Street, in his book, Passions of the Heart, he makes the point that when people are tempted to look at pornography, there's typically specific motivations they have for looking at this. Because the, 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 the pornography is just a symptom. The real issue is that they, their hearts are set on themselves and some idol rather than God. And he says that typically, the thing that motivates people to look at the stuff, to, to engage with a prostitute, to engage in sexual morality, is that it promises to deliver them from their fear. They may be someone who they are stressed, they are fearful, and they just want relief from that, and so they go to these things. This may be someone who's discontent, where, where their wife or their spouse or whatever, they're not, they're not satisfying them the way they want to, and so they go to these videos or these, these websites or this prostitute because it promises to fill in the gaps. And also, sometimes it just promises you, promise you a sense of control in your life. Well, all throughout the life, you feel like there's, you have no control over everything except the, the, the website that you type in the computer. And the tactics we see all throughout Delilah is that when she, she tries to seduce you, she tries to make these promises, but when that doesn't pan out, she just starts nagging day after day until your soul is vexed. That's exactly what Satan does, is when he realizes he can't seduce you, he's just gonna pound you with temptation until you get too tired to resist. As we look at verse 18, we see that because of all these tactics that Delilah did, she, she finally brings her betrayal of Samson to full fruition. Verse 18. It says, when Delilah saw that he told her all of his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again, for he has told me all of his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. In their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And he said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So at this point, Delilah's intuition is kicking, and she knows that this isn't like the past time. She knows that Samson had finally told her the truth. So she, goes, she, she contacts her, her point of contact with the Philistine loads, and she says, he's finally caved in, bring the money. And so they bring her the money, she gets her payday. He, she makes her sleep on his lap, and as he's asleep, she summons the man to shave his head. And one last time she cries out, the Philistines are upon you. And he's still thinking this is all a game. 
And he wakes up and he says, this is, I'm just going to do the same thing as before. But the whole time, he did not realize that the Lord left him. Honestly, out of all the verses in this chapter, that is the verse that scares me the most. That the Lord left him and he didn't even realize it. That's how callous his heart has become. And keep in mind, the last chapter made it clear that, that Samson had been judging Israel for 20 years. All throughout those 20 years, despite his unfaithfulness, he, despite how many dead animals he's touched, despite marrying these forbidden women, after 20 years, the God still blessed him throughout all of it. He still gave him his strength. And it wasn't until 20 years later that the Lord said, enough is enough. There's a huge danger when we presume upon God's patience. There may be some of you here who you've been indulging in sexual morality for 20 years, never, realized, never having any consequences and thinking that God has his favor on you. But you need to realize this might be the year that God says enough is enough. And what I'm not saying is that you can lose your salvation if you're a Christian. What I'm saying is that God has a point where he whips out the, 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 the spanker and he spanks his children. And it hurts. As we look at verse 21, we see the consequences for Samson presuming upon God's patience. Look at verse 21 with me. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill of the prison. See, this was a common practice for, for these kinds of countries is whenever they, they took captives, they would guide, gouge out your eyes and turn you into a slave to work for them. And the ironic thing is they took him back to the very place that this chapter started off with, in Gaza. The very place where he fulfilled the lust of his flesh. And now as we reach the end of the chapter, we see that that same flesh is what caused him to be imprisoned in the same place. But as we look at verse 22, we see a glimmer of hope. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. See, there, there, there's, there's a point where, where the author is saying God hasn't fully left him yet. God, God is about to do something. Which brings us to our third scene, third and final scene, which is Samson's redemption. Look at verses 23 through 24. Now the loads of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. See, the this, this, this section starts off with, with these Philistines worshiping and sacrificing to the God Dagon because he had finally delivered the very man who's killed thousands of their people. Dagon, by the way, this is the, that, that weird statue you see in 1 Samuel where the top half is a human and the bottom half is a fish. Just an absurd statue when, when it comes down to it. But you look at that. These are people who are sacrificing to their God. They're worshiping. They're praising him. They're, they're grateful to him. These people have more devotion to their false God than Samson ever had to the true God. You never once see him make sacrifices to his God. You never once see him live to glorify him. The only time you see him reach out to God is when he says, give me water. 
I'm thirsty, I'm dying of thirst. I just killed a thousand men. And we need to remember that when we willingly indulge in our sins, we are actually basically justifying false worship to unbelievers. When I was an atheist, I had this crippling fear that people would evangelize me. Because deep down, I already knew the gospel and I knew that if someone came and retold me it, I would be more culpable for rejecting it. And so I would constantly think of ways to shut down those conversations. And if you were a man and you came up to me and you told me, you need to repent and forsake your idols because they will never satisfy you. And you need to trust in the only God who will. My response to you would have been, when was the last time you looked at pornography? Because you're telling me that my gods can't quote unquote satisfy, why do you keep coming to my gods for satisfaction? We need to remember that. As we look at verses 25 through 27, we see Samson's humiliation right prior to his redemption. Verse 25, and when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison. He, en he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the load of the Philistines were there. And the roof there was about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. See, Samson is in front of 3,000 of his enemies who are just drunk and mocking him and shaming him and jeering at him. This is a man who went from being the strongest person that you can imagine to now having his eyes gouged out. He is broken. He's being mocked. He's helpless. And he's being scorned at and laughed at by 3,000 of his enemies. See, there's... It, there's a difference between being in the situation where 3,000 of your enemies are laughing and mocking you because of your faithfulness to Christ versus when they're doing it because of your own sin. There's a whole nother degree of shame in that. And so as we get to the end of this chapter, we see Samson is finally redeemed in verse 28 through 30. Verse 28, look at it with me. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for, for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the left, and his left hand on the other. And, the, and Samson said, Let me die with these Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the loads upon the and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So this begins with Samson just laying out just one desperate plea. God, I know I don't deserve it. Just this once, help me. God has removed all sense of presumption and pride out of this man, and he is broken, and he just wants vindication. And that's oftentimes how God deals with our pride, is he, he, he gouges out our eyes. He humbles us. In fact, Matthew 5 tells us that if, if, your sin causes, if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck out your eye. 
And what we always see is that if we have an unwillingness to do this, God's just gonna gouge it out for us. And so Samson is broken, he is humbled, and God hears this plea. And even though God ha didn't have, have to do it, he gives him strength one last time, and he, he brings the whole house down, kills all the Philistine loads, all 3,000 of these people. And he kills more in his death than he did in the entire 20 years of him judging Israel. And the amazing thing is, is as unfaithful as Samson is, he's actually a type. He's a type of Christ. There are all these parallels between him and Christ that you see throughout his story. And one of them, which we just read, is he delivered God's people through his death. This is pointing to Christ. You see Christ in this chapter. And this story concludes in verse 31. Then his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. The story ends with his funeral. And a couple of final lessons that we can take from this story is all throughout Samson's account is you see there's a big difference between being faithless and being unfaithful. See, the interesting thing is when you look at Samson, he actually had tremendous amounts of faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, in the, the Hall of Faith chapter, he's listed in that chapter. And not only that, but he's listed right alongside David and the prophets. He had a lot of faith. You never once see him scared as he's fighting these lions, as he's fighting these thousand men. He trusted in God's promises. But the issue is that all of his love was directed to himself. It wasn't directed at God. So all that faith just led to presumption. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I have, but I have not love, I am nothing. You can have faith that sends mountains into the ocean, but if you are motivated by a love of self rather than a love of God, you are a Samson. The second thing we see from this is that God can use even your own sin for your, for your good and for his glory. See, there, there, there's probably some of you here that God is chastising you right now over your sin. There's some of you here that are suffering consequences from sins that you may have done 20 years ago. When people look at pornography, those images don't go out of the way. They have to live with those images. But the amazing thing is, is if you trust in Christ and you repent of your sins and you are a child of his, God promises not only to deliver you from those, those consequences, from delivering you from those sins, he promises to use those to make you more into like Christ. The very sins that cost Christ his life, God uses to make his children more like him. That should give us a lot of hope, honestly. And the final lesson we see from that is we can have even the strongest man alive, but that's not enough. We need something better. You can have 10,000 Samsons in your army, and that's not going to be enough to deliver you from your sins. We need someone better. We need Christ. We need a deliverer who, rather than boasting in his own strength, takes on the form of a weak, humble, meek servant. We need someone who, rather than being in prison for his own sins, frees sinners. 
from imprisonment. We need someone who, rather than having his, his eyes gouged out because of his sin, he gives sight to those who are sinful. We need someone who, rather than being buried in the tomb of his father, as we saw in, in verse 31, he's resurrected from the tomb and seated alongside his father. That's the deliverer we need. And here's the great thing, is that we have a God who lived the perfect life, died the perfect death for people who hated and crucified him, which is all of us. And even though he is perfectly just in sending every one of us to hell, he has given everyone here an opportunity to not only be delivered from hell, but to have life and to have it abundantly. And the only thing you have to do to receive that free gift of salvation is to trust in Jesus' works. That's all you have to do. And the alternative is hell. So as we, as we conclude, this is, my, this is my last question to you. We just read through a chapter warning against the danger of a Delilah, the danger of temptation. Are you going to adhere to these warnings in your life, or are you going to ignore them like the man with the hippo? Let's close in prayer, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Randy. Father, we, we come before you as guilty Samsons. We come before you as a people who often take your grace and your patience for granted. We take advantage of it. We, we presume upon your mercy. And Father, we just ask that you change us. We ask that you, you change our desires. We ask that you give us a willingness to live for you rather than for ourselves. Father, we ask that not only do you help our faith, help our weak, weak faith in you, but we ask that you grow a love for you in our hearts so that we can actually be something, so that we can be useful to you. Father, I pray that you protect us all from the Delilahs in our lives, from our wicked desires. I pray that you give us all uh, guidance, protection, a hedge of protection from Satan. Father, I pray that you don't let Satan sift any one of your children. Don't let Delilah uh, drag us to hell, Father. And Father, we know that you promised that, that, that you're faithful to preserve your sheep. And so, Father, just help us to trust in these promises. <coughs> Father, we ask that you be with us throughout the rest of the day, and we thank you for being a God who's given us something better than Samson. Thank you for Christ. Amen.